0: readings alert us, in my view, to this amazing grace of God, his forgiveness, and how that forgiveness comes first to and then through his people. And uh, that's kind of a basic story, but it's possible to actually think you know exactly what you're doing. It's possible to think that you know exactly the story you're supposed to be living in and get it wrong. For instance, not long ago, a friend of mine told me about a wedding he was conducting, And this, you know, amazing, cute, charming little five-year-old boy, you know, can you picture him in a little white tux, you know, and he's the ring bearer, and he's very excited about doing his job, and, you know, he he goes to the rehearsal and gets it all down, and the the night comes of the wedding, and the little boy, he starts walking down the aisle, and he walks down the aisle. Occasionally, he just stops and goes, roar. (laughs) He walks a little bit and stops and goes, roar. And, you know, he gets to the front, and the best man, you know, standing here, and he comes and stands in front of the best man. The best man looks down at him and says, what the heck were you doing? And he looks up and says, I was just being the ring bear. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. That's what I said when I heard the story. I said, no way. But it is possible to actually think that you get it, you know. Like, I, 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 I know what I'm doing here. But uh, occasionally, it's, it's really refreshing to have the Bible just say to us so clearly as it did this morning, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves your full acceptance. I mean, think about it. How often does the Bible talk about itself that way? But Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying, fully deserving of your acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we just have to be honest and say that the church from time to time is stopping and roaring, thinking that she's one thing, when in fact she's called to be another. Well, this is God that's revealed in Jesus, this God who the Gospels tells us searches for lost sheep and for lost coins, and it tells us something very important, and that is that Jesus did not arise out of the blue. The story of Jesus does not begin with Jesus, Eugene Peterson writes in his introduction to Matthew. He said God had been at work for a long time. Salvation, which is the main business of Jesus, is an old business. Jesus is the coming together and final form of themes and energies and movements that had been set in place before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is utterly unique, but he's not odd. This Jesus who came to save sinners in the world is not odd. In fact, every day we wake up in the middle of his story. We wake up in the middle of something that's already going on, Eugene says, something that's been going on for a long time. And we're neither accidental nor incidental to this story. But in fact, from this story, we get our orientation. We get our briefing, our background and our reassurance so that we're actually living in his story, not the one we think that we ought to be living in. So, for instance, in the Exodus story, God shows himself as the savior of sinners in this, this story of the golden calf that we read this morning. And essentially, the background is this, that the people at God had been experiencing the invisible hand of God in one of the most powerful ways that humankind would ever see it, in the writing of the Ten Commandments on these tablets and the giving of these holy uh, tablets to Moses. But they still wanted gods that they could see. They wanted a God of their own creation. And so God comes to Moses and says, Moses, look at your people, and we don't have time to really get into this, but this is actually sort of a funny conversation, where God says to Moses, look at your people. They've become corrupt. They've turned away from what I commanded them. They've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's kind of a fundamental mess up. That's a little worse than thinking you're the ring bearer. That is a significant follow-up. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then God says, to them, there is, says of them to Moses, these are a stiff-necked people. And there's a big irony there. What God is saying is, they won't bow to me. I mean, not literally bow, but they won't sort of get with what I'm doing. But they're very happy to bow to this golden calf. And so God says to Moses, now leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I might destroy them. And then Moses becomes the mediator. Moses becomes the person that now alerts us to this mixture of grace and forgiveness and church. As Moses, the leader of God's church, the leader of God's people, becomes a mediator and says, seeking the favor of God, oh God, he said... Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? And can't you hear God going, uh, Moses, the golden calf thingy? You know, that's why my anger's burning here. But it doesn't stop Moses. He persists in his intercession that's rooted in the compassion of God that we've been singing about this morning or that we trust in when we go to the back of the room and make intercession for people who are currently outside of faith. And God says, and Moses begs God saying, please stop your anger. Think twice about bringing this evil on your people. And this begins to suggest how grace and forgiveness in the church works together. It works together. Our part in that is a kind of bold, reckless praying. If we were to read the rest of this story in verse 32, Moses actually says to God, take my life for theirs. Pretty bold, pretty reckless. Paul in Romans says, I wish I could be cut off from God if it would mean salvation for my people, the Jews. That's a kind of bold, reckless intercession, mediation, trusting in the compassion of God. And of course, God did think twice. And based on Modus's mediation between God and his people, God decided not to do the evil that he'd threatened against his people. Well, likewise, Psalm 51. I mean, this is maybe the passage in all of the Bible about the grace of God and his forgiveness in the face of enormous sins. I mean, David's sins were really big. I mean, maybe they're not a golden calf in saying this is God, but they involved um, adultery and murder and lying and cover up. I mean, it sounds like something you read in the Washington Post, Right. I mean, these are really big sins. These are the kind of things that get senators kicked out of the Senate. These are the kind of things that get school principals fired or people, you know, whatever place they work in. This is really big stuff. So Psalm 51, again, connects us to this story of repentance, and it's based in an appeal to God's steadfast, His steadfast love, his compassion, and his mercy. And this is really important because one of the kind of difficult things to to get in the Bible, I mean to like really get sort of deeply, is this notion that sinners really can't do anything to save themselves apart from the compassion of God. Now, like many of you here, you know, I grew up in Santa Ana, just seven, eight, I don't know, nine miles from the ocean or something, and my whole orientation as a young person, of course, was south, right, down the 55 to the ocean. And so, you know, in my youth, I saw a lot of people get saved by lifeguards. Thank God I never had to, but I saw a lot happen to a lot of other people. And have you ever seen this or if you have any lifeguard training? You know what happens is if a lifeguard sees somebody out in the water flailing around trying to save themselves, they swim up to them and they stop about five feet from them and they wait. I mean, they'll ask the person, calm down, I'm going to get you. But if the person won't calm down and they're just flailing and kicking and screaming and they're sort of beside themselves, the lifeguard waits until all the energy is drained out of them and they're about to go under. And the lifeguard, she or he, swoops in, you know, with that orange thing and picks him up and carries him back. And this is the notion of the Bible when it's talking about this this great compassion. What could David have done? He can't unsleep with Bathsheba. He can't take back the fact that Uriah got murdered in battle because he set it up that way. There's nothing he can do. And so David finds himself saying, Lord, it's against you and you alone that I've sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So shaping this kind of personal God imagination, this idea that God, whatever's happening in my life, is happening primarily between me and you, this is why worship, like if you ever wonder, why do we sing because what we're trying to do is create intimate moments. Why are we trying to create intimate moments? Because not only is forgiveness rooted and found in and discovered and sort of breathed life in in those intimate moments, not just forgiveness, but life. Some of you in worship times have or will hear callings from God. You'll hear little whispers about, hey, call your mother. I mean, anything can happen in these moments of intimacy that's facilitated by worship. This is why we confess our sins every week. This is why we do Eucharist, because it's a way of actually, through sacrament, participating in the life of God. Well, David, of course, is rooted in the Hebrew version of this tradition. And so he says, God, created me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me from your presence because that's where I find your voice and that's where I find healing and that's where I find the kind of intimacy that allows me to have a life in you and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So finally, David says, God, I love the way Peterson gets this in the message, God, make a fresh start in me. Now, I want you to just try to picture the poignancy in these words. Shape a Genesis Work in me, in the chaos of my life. Shape a Genesis week out of the chaos of my life. The earth was formless and void. And God spoke, and the chaos turned to life as we know it. And David says, God, look at my life. It is chaos. I am morally bankrupt. Everything I thought I believed about myself, I've betrayed. And in betraying my own inner goodness, I've betrayed you. It's it's really, when it's all down to it, it's down to me and you. So God, look at the chaos of my life and shape a Genesis week in it. And then he says, and this is what again connects us to this great story of grace, forgiveness, and church. As David said, and when you've done that, give me a job teaching your rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. And this, of course, the Timothy reading tells us is what Paul experienced, that Paul experienced this divine grace and that it turned him into apostle proclaiming God's grace in Jesus. This is why Paul says, I am so grateful to Jesus Christ for making me adequate to do this work. Well, what is that work? The work is announcing this connection between grace and forgiveness in church And how this all works together in God's plan. Paul says of God, I know that he went out on a limb, trusting me with this ministry. The only credentials I brought to it were invective, witch hunts, and arrogance. So now Paul, we start out this morning saying, here is a really trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then we said, Jesus didn't come out of the blue. He arises from within this story. We see the beginning of the story in God's forgiveness of his people in the golden calf. We see God forgiving David. We see God forgiving Paul and and catching Paul up into this big story. And then, of course, in the Gospels, we really just see where the rubber meets the road. Because the tension behind our Gospel story this morning is this. Tax collectors and sinners, people of all the wrong character, were coming to faith, and they were gathering around Jesus. And some of them were coming to faith And so Jesus is, of course, rejoicing with them. He's literally at parties, gatherings, dinner parties, whatever you want to think of, with these people of ill repute because he's rejoicing, as the text says, that some of them are being found. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're muttering to themselves, the Bible says, that this man welcomes and eats with these horrible people. So it's their beef that raises a question and that causes Jesus, then, to tell those parables of the lost sheep and the lost coins. But as I was thinking about it this week, their beef with Jesus raises a question, I think, for us. Think about this with me. What activities could we do as a church? What could we do as the visible church of today, as Holy Trinity Church? What could we do that would make our friends and family accuse us of the same thing? What could we possibly do How could we be so connected with sinners that people would think that we're compromising, that we've lost our place? I don't know, but I aim to find out. And I'll know that in a way we've arrived when people start saying, what the heck are you doing hanging around with people like that? That is a great question. And I hope to God someday, and I don't mean that as slang, I mean it literally. I hope to and in God that someday we're having to answer that kind of question. Why are you doing that? And then we could tell stories of how we're caught up in this story of grace, forgiveness, and church, and how we're trying to recover people who are far from God. I mean, what would we do? If push came to shove, would we change the services? If push came to shove, would we reorient the programs i mean we don't have any programs yet but would we or reorient the the programs of the church i mean how far would we go so that people would say why are you doing that some of some of us in this room have vineyard backgrounds and therefore have uh, a lot of affection for john wimber the founder of the vineyard church and when john got saved he was a musician in las vegas and a full-on pagan and he gets saved and he comes into this little quaker church and then his friends from Vegas in the L.A. music scene. I don't know if you know, but Wimber used to work in Phil Spector's studio back when Phil Spector was Phil Spector. Are you with me? I mean, he was like, the, you know, you had Barry Gordy back east and you had Phil Spector here. So John's working with Spector and he's a genius. And so all these musicians and, you know, it would be like today suddenly people showing up with piercings and tattoos and purple mohawks, you know, and this little Quaker church finally said to John, John, you're ruining our church. And John got it. He knew what they were saying. And I think at that moment started dreaming of what, you know, you now think of as the vineyard. And when the vineyard first started, I can remember Debbie and I being there. This is probably like 1978, 1979. And, I'll, you know, so this shows you how much it has stuck in my mind for 30-some years. John telling this story of we're going to be a church for the coals, C-U-L-L-S. And he he gave this long metaphor of like, uh, you know, maybe using Orange County, you know, oranges as a metaphor of oranges coming down a conveyor belt and people working and taking the coals and throwing them into baskets behind them while the good fruit went on. And John said, it's, I'll never forget it. It's those baskets. The ones for whom no one else will have anything to do with. That's why We exist. Now, it's important, having said that, though, that Jesus is not saying that these people will be accepted just as they are and they don't need to repent. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm here for you. I love you. I've come to search for you. You don't have to earn this search of, searching love of mine. I want to be with you. And I celebrate when He finds you. But that's different than saying you don't have to Repent. Right? The people of God in the story of Moses repented. David repented. Paul says, I repented. Repentance and love aren't mutually exclusive in Jesus. In the story of grace and forgiveness in church, they go together. So if we think of this story, it kind of goes like this. There's grace given to us by God. We receive it. And then grace is given to others. That's how this story of Grace and forgiveness and church works together, but there's a problem. There's a great challenge with this. Nobody knows whether Augustine said this and Luther picked it up or Luther said it or what. But here's the problem. The church is a whore. There's a really big challenge here. The church makes golden calves. The church sleeps with neighbors and kills their husbands. The church has religious leaders who say, Jesus, why are you doing this? Peter denied Jesus. Jesus betrayed him. James and John wanted murderous retribution. Paul says he was the chief of sinners. There's been the Crusades, the Inquisition, and all up today, the church is a whore. But she is also your mother. And you would not be here today. I would not be here today. You would not be a Christian. You wouldn't be here worshiping if it weren't for the faithfulness of the church. Over two thousand years. Think of William Wilberforce, abolishing slave trade. Nelson Mandela, twenty-seven years in prison, and he comes out breathing reconciliation, not revenge. Father Damien, a Roman Catholic priest who moved from Belgium in 1840 to care for lepers in Hawaii. After 16 years of doing so, he died. Think of John Paul II kneeling before his would-be assassin in prison and forgiving him. What about all the Rwandan families who had people rape and murder and burn their families? And now they're building homes for the people who macheted and raped their family members. What about villages all over Africa and Latin America and Asia who have no TV, no laptops, no iPhones, no droids. The only thing these villages know about American America is Christians. The only thing these villages know about God is World Vision and Compassion and Salvation Army and Catholic Charities and Samaritan's Purse. What about Rock Harbor? Who in many ways has been our mother. For a year, they've let us be here. For absolutely free. So, yeah, the church is far from perfect. But outsiders need us because the story of grace and forgiveness doesn't work if you cut off the church. It only works if you have grace, forgiveness, and church. Look, a human being inspired by God sought you like a lost sheep or a lost coin, and that human being was a part of the church. And now God is saying to the church, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing, searching for others through me. I want to do it through you. This is God's plan for the church. In my honest view, Holy Trinity Church is destined to take its place within the church of Orange County. And we will do whatever it takes to demonstrate the amazing, searching love of God. For the sake of others, the least, the last, the left out, and the lost. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.